Well met, friends. I'm Steph Midlock. And I'm Jude Vase. Welcome to Atherbeth, a podcast exploring the fates and freedoms of Tolkien's Legendarium. What's up, man? How's it going? Uh, hi. I'm okay. Well, you know, 2020, 2021. Woof. <laughs> okay becomes a relative measure, but yeah, we're getting by. Good. I love your beard. I'm just putting that out there. Thank you. Uh, I have joined the rest of Depressed World in growing a pandemic beard, so. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> no, it looks great. I like it. Maybe for Halloween, I'll be a dwarf. Perfect. Ooh, I love that. That's going to be great. Yeah. We just landed a thing on Mars the other day. That was cool. Yeah, that was sweet. Yeah. I find it more than a little appropriate that the second that we have a re a rational government all of a sudden the you know big news science is working again <laughs> good thing that's back online yeah Jeez. i don't have any real announcements here we're just sort of sh shooting the shit um yeah. there's a whole bunch of really interesting online tolkien conferences and calls for paper going on right now uh this is a thing i've been meaning to start calling out in the podcast, but I kind of dropped the ball this month. But in the show notes, I am going to point to a couple of places where if you are a person who is writing papers or is interested in writing papers or attending conferences, uh, you can find those things. So I will put them in the show notes. But there are a number of really interesting conferences and talks that are, are being organized right now uh, that you should look into. So I will be sure to put those in the show notes. Awesome. What a great idea. I honestly never thought to do that. So that's wonderful and very smart and cool. Um, and so much of that is online right now, obviously, because that's where we're living in, in coronavirus land. And um, what a great opportunity to get to interact with some of these groups that maybe meet overseas or, you know, far away from yourself. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, an ironic fringe benefit of um, also sort of depressing fringe benefit of coronavirus has been as if everything about coronavirus wasn't depressing, has been the demonstration that everything can be accessible if you want it to be. And a lot of these conferences have connect have become so much more accessible for people that can't travel or don't have the financial ability, uh, so on and so forth. And it's been great. Um, I've been able to attend a couple of conferences that I never would have been able to get out to otherwise for logistical reasons, which has been a lot of fun. So I hope that when all of this is over, people will not immediately just throw online attendance back to the wolves uh, and they will maintain uh, the ability to attend online because uh, I think that's very democratizing to allow people to attend digitally. I certainly know a number of people that are financially or disabled in some way that can't make these flights out to the UK or Texas or what have you, where these conferences are being held and doing them online really uh, opens up the space. Uh, so I hope that they continue. Awesome. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for doing that. I will, I will also be checking the show notes for those. That's rad. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think that's all we've got. So um, why don't we move on? Yeah, we've got many paths to tread. Or do we? Did we pick this path? Or was it predetermined? How can we ever know, Jude? So hurry up and let's begin! Yeah. 
So the topic this month is fate and free will. This is coming out of, I don't know, one of the last couple of episodes. I can't keep that kind of information in my head. The Compassion of the Valar. Was that the one that I talked about it in? See, this is why I need you. Uh, because you remember these <laughs> things, and my head is like a pasta strainer. Uh, information just falls out when I try and put it in. That's true. Yeah, okay, that's right. I'm remembering now. Uh, the water goes back in. Yes, in Compassion of the Valar, we talked about free will, the degree to which the Valar are free-willed. See, I'm, I'm, I'm competent. You're all over that. This is a topic that I think is super interesting. So uh, as with many of these more complex sort of theological or sort of scholastic topics, uh, I am not making a claim to be doing a comprehensive coverage here. Um, this is sort of an overview of the topics. I recommend that if you're interested in these, you look at the show notes and you look at the sources that we've accessed, um, particularly this episode. There are a couple of really, really excellent sources that I've included in here that I've cited that did some fantastic work. And the primary sources, Tolkien's notes, uh, Dr. Flieger's paper, a couple of the others are just fantastic. Uh, this was a really fun episode to research. So uh, if this piques your interest, please do read deeper. And I am here for the food. <laughs> <laughs> our, our lovely buffet of nothing. Yeah. Yay. I love it. <laughs> so as with any of sort of complex subject, especially one that dips its toe into philosophical matters, like any freshman philosophy student, I'm going to define my terminology up front. Oh, thank goodness. Because, you know, <laughs> we all know the terms. I mean, <laughs> it's not going to, like, really help me or anything. <laughs> so we'll start with some of the broader ones. Free will is a topic, is a phrase that everybody thinks they know what it means, but it's actually one of those things that philosophy has a much narrower definition of than people tend to expect. Philosophy defines it and I'm, I'm being slightly broader here for comprehension purposes. As, Can I interrupt you? Certainly. Just so the listeners know, Jude spent many years studying philosophy. More as an years than necessary. So, oh, stop. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody was, did not get out in four years. He had an extended tenure studying yeah. philosophy. So uh, so he he comes this is this is not just read off Wikipedia as I would do. This is, he's got some some knowledge behind this. So thank you. I so thank you for introducing us. So I'm sorry you were going to explain to us free will. So free will is the ability to freely choose one's actions, which sounds self-explanatory, but there's a lot of caveats to that. There's questions that come up such as like what does it mean to freely choose uh under what circumstances do your choices stop being freely made if you are unaware of the consequences of your actions is it a freely made action there's a lot of uh, free will is one of those topics that touches an enormous number of other subjects epistemology metaphysics everything like it's very difficult to to talk about free will without running into a half a dozen other subfields of philosophy. It's also one of the oldest. The subject of free will versus predestination, predetermination, fate, is one of the oldest questions in philosophy. All of the, not all of, but the vast majority of the great names in philosophy have all wrangled with it and offered their two cents on it. 
so it's a it's a really fundamental question, and there's a lot of good and bad answers. Uh, until very recently, the conception of free will was tied pretty directly to the conception of moral responsibility. I'm not going to get into what changed very re relatively recently. It's not germane to what we're talking about here. Um, but it's very relevant. That concept of free will being linked to moral responsibility is pretty relevant to Tolkien. So we are going to talk about that. The idea there being that if you have the ability to make a choice and one choice involves a moral culpability, you, that's free will is engaged there. The idea, like the famous train track moral problem. Right. So if doing one act, if making one choice is the moral choice, and if your conception involves some some choices being more or less moral than others, there's you're implying free will there, because if you have no free will, no action is more or less moral than any other. That makes sense. Yeah, I guess. I mean, what would you do? Would you kill all the people or the one person? I kill the one on the train track. Of course, kill the one. Kill one to save the many. Yeah, I mean that's cool. to me that is a that is an elementary problem, but. The, the problem with that, that, that question is, is deceptive because it's not meant to be answered. It's meant to be applied to a philosophical system. And then you, you, you ask further questions and you, you open up the questions. And this is the thing that I, right. I think a lot of people don't get about the way philosophy was taught and is taught to a degree, but not as much anymore, I don't think. Those kinds of questions are designed to test philosophical premises. They're not actual questions. So you're, what you're looking to do with, with those sorts of scenarios is put a philosophical premise to a like math, like you're, you have an equation and you're, you're, you're feeding numbers or other equations into it to try and see if it breaks or, or mm -hmm. like a scientific premise, like water plus electricity equals bad or, you know, whatever. <laughs> like you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're testing sure. a, a, a premise trying to mm -hmm. trying to reach a conclusion. It's the same way with philosophy. You you have a a philosophical premise and you're using these questions to try and tease out a further answer. So if your your question if your premise is men have free will and that there's a moral responsibility there and you you uh, use that question, that train track question to try and test that, that train track scenario raises some interesting questions. Like is that a real choice in that case? Because you're morally, right. you have no, like, it, it, there's no real moral difference between those two choices, depending on what system of, what system of culpability you're looking at there. Right. It's interesting. Right. It, it's not really something I want to go too deep into there, but there's, there's a, it's an enormously complicated subject is what I'm trying sure. to get at. Absolutely. But it was one that in Tolkien's day, he was rigorously educated in, both from a philosophical and re religious standpoint, which we'll talk sure. about, and we'll talk about that as well. But for your purposes, you the listeners, what, you, what I would like you to take away from this is that free will is the, is the ability of an actor to freely choose their own actions, and that Tolkien's conception of free will would have included a moral responsibility, that having free will meant you had a moral responsibility as well. Mm. So that's the takeaway. Yeah. That's sort of the one-liner takeaway that I think we need to to take from the definition. That's interesting. 
But your moral responsibility is skewed based on your own morals, obviously, right? So it's not so much that as the idea that because you have free will, uh-huh. you therefore have moral responsibility. The idea that if you didn't have free will, you can't, you can't have moral responsibility without free will. Because you can freely choose any action, you have a you therefore have a moral responsibility for the actions that you take. Sure. You can't sin if you don't have a soul and therefore don't have a an ability to choose. No, it's true. That's right. Yeah. I just think it's yeah, it just bases it's based on your own moral on your culture or whatever you grew up in, that moral compass, right? It's going to Um so yes. That's kind but of no. well, you know, <laughs> I mean, yes, that's true. But for the purposes of what we're talking about here, we're making a very narrow definition yes. of yes. all he's say all this definition says is you can't be culpable for a moral for moral for moral responsibility without free will. Gotcha. So for yeah, example, makes- um, to give a, a, a Tolkien example, mm-hmm. orcs. This was a problem that Tolkien ran into. Right, that's what I was thinking about. If orcs are the descendants of children that have been twisted, then they have souls. And therefore, either they all uniformly are choosing to be evil, in which case they are all corrupted and and committing sin, which he didn't believe was possible because he didn't believe that they could inherit that sinful behavior. And he believed that they were fundamentally, these these children were, were pure, because that is how he had conceived them, like cosmo- cosmogenically or whatever you want to pronounce that word. Or they didn't have a soul, in which case they were they were being puppeted. So it was a comp. This was a, a thing he was really concerned with: was do do orcs have free will? Because if they do, that posed that posed a really complicated theological problem for him with regards to the children. But only. I mean, I, yeah, I totally, I just feel like if I, okay, so I'm an orc, right? And I have free will and I think I'm doing a great job because I'm doing the job that I, my group has told me to do and I'm doing it well, which means that seen from an elf point of view or Tolkien's point of view, I'm doing a bad job, right? So I'm using my free will and I'm morally acting the way that I should as an orc because it's my job to, to so- do this because that's how I was raised, right? I mean, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just, you know. Tolkien would not have granted that kind of cultural relativism. Yeah. Because for him, the the problem that he was that he was putting forward was that the souls of the children are fundamentally uncorrupted and could not be corrupted against their will. But they were. But they couldn't be. But they were. This is a thing. This is a thing that he talks about in Osanwe Kenta, is that a soul could not be forced against its will. To be corrupted. So you're saying they chose to be corrupted. Well, that's the problem. If if they are born into the life in, as orcs, that implies that they are corrupted because they are in service of a corrupted lord. They are in corrupted bodies. They are born against their will into a fallen destiny. And they ha- they, their fates have been changed to that of corruption, and they are fundamentally that they they have lost a degree of free will to begin with and that they are they they don't have a choice to to be to make evil choices yeah and further there's also an, an element of like for him 
they would know right away that what they're doing is evil because they are children and they would have an innate sense of like, this is a, this is a, a, a fell act. I should not be doing this. I just think that's a super one-sided way of looking at things. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, <laughs> You're but like, yeah, doy. <laughs> this is one of those places where Middle Earth is a Catholic universe. It's true. Yeah, sure. I will. I will allow for that. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's such an interesting thing, you know. And here, this is why we're doing a whole episode about it because you can just go down the rabbit hole, as it were. Yeah, which we've done. Um, we're already like four sections <laughs> ahead oh, of no. ourselves in the first. In, in the Shoot. first term. All right. Forget we said any of that. That's all right. We're no, going to bring I mean, it up later. This, this is why it's a really interesting <laughs> subject. Um, okay. Sorry. Okay. So, we, all right. I feel like we've covered free will. Yeah. So the next one is fate. This is sort of a specific subsect of like predestination, predetermination, free, uh, fate. But it's the general idea that the outcome of events is predetermined. Okay. There's a lot of different ways to conceive of that. In some cases, there's like material predetermination, which was very popular before quantum mechanics came along. And this was the idea, the sci- a lot of scientists pers- subscribed to this idea for a long time, which is the idea that like the Big Bang happened. And then because you could calculate mathematically, like atom, particle A bumps into particle B and that has a predictable, you, if, you were, if you had enough time and enough math and enough observations, you could just calculate the path of every particle in the universe and you would know everything that happened. Hmm. Down to like, I know what thought you're thinking because I know which way the electrons are going to move. Interesting. And I know which thoughts that... And then quantum mechanics came along and now we know that that's not how, that's not how electrons work. That's not how like fucking anything works because fundamentally <laughs> the universe is crazy soup. If you, go, yeah. <laughs> if you go down far enough, it's just a big soup of crazy with, like, the illusion of sanity floating on top, like fat on ramen. So That's a weird, I like that. Okay. All right. Man. Complicated. Then, But then you also get sort of more older conceptions of this, which is things like fate, where some things are predetermined to happen, or predestination, like, all, all those sorts of, of older conceptions um destiny like, fate, like capital f fate yeah capital rather f- than lowercase f fate yeah yeah like like fate personified yeah so the okay. idea that like someone's but, destiny can be pr- can be written yeah or like you're in the hands of fate now yeah. the general idea is this concept is that the things that come before can determine the things that come after Okay. Which free will would say is not the case because at any time an individual can make a choice which changes what's going to happen. At any moment you could decide I'm going to go left or I'm going to go right or uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to decide to go into this career or that career or individual choices can, can have vast impacts. Well, I think that's that's the debate, right? Or Or, or was it like... You were always going to get to that career and the path you chose, you know, determined little things, but you were always going to get there. That, and, and I think that that's what we're going to talk about later, that's right? We talk one about, of the things. Yeah. 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 It's a very interesting. Yeah. Can I just say, I when I was kind of thinking about this for myself, I was, I was you know, I think that duality 
and that dissonance lives in my own head too, because I feel like, yeah, man, I make my own destiny. I determine my own path in life. Fuck you. But then I tend to use this, that like abstract concept of fate as a scapegoat when things start to kind of go wrong. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's almost like a way to protect myself from blame where I'm like, oh, well, I was meant to like have a crappy day or something or like, you know, or even on a bigger, like, oh, I was from the start. I was screwed by this. This was never going to work out for me. Um, So I feel like it really is down to my moods, like how I use it. (laughs) And I think that that, and I think that we all do that. And I think we all live with that, that both things can, may not be able to be true at the same time, but it doesn't really stop me from using them. So, Yeah. (laughs) yeah. So then another term I want to talk about is umbar, which is one of the words for fate in Tolkien's legendarium it is the specifically the Quenya word for fate. Okay. Now, a couple of notes. This was from 1968, a uh, paper he was writing during his philosophical phase when he was redoing the cosmological aspects. Um, he had written the Athrobeth. He was very deep in that sort of introspective phase where he's he's recon- he's rethinking a lot of the pieces. It mm-hmm. comes from a series of notes in which Tolkien contrasts the word defined as fate against the word ambar, world, with which it shares a root. He gives elves a super interesting conception of fate that I want to talk about here. So umbar, which is the elven word for fate, is beautifully in keeping with their worldview uh, as a people who view themselves as existing entirely within the the confines of the world. Now, to refresh people's memory, or if, if you are a listener who hasn't listened to some of our older episodes on elf soul bullshit, elves mm-hmm. believed that their immortality was bounded entirely within the lifespan of Arda. That they were immortal, but that their souls never left Arda. So mm-hmm. they, they would live for the duration of, of the world and then end. When Arda ended, so did they. That was it. They were bounded within Arda. Unlike men, this is why they called it the gift. They called death the gift because they believed that men, that the souls of men left Arda and returned to Iluvatar or, I don't know, went to Vegas or whatever. Like, (laughs) whatever their souls did, they left the circles of the world. And as a result, when Arda ended, they did not. And this is a super clutch difference that I really Mm -hmm. want people to like take a moment and ruminate on the idea that when you die maybe you believe in the soul maybe you don't but there's there's a mystery there maybe it's worms and darkness maybe it's heaven maybe it's reincarnation there's a mystery we don't know but it's not hard to imagine something else elves don't have that luxury for elves they know if i die if my body is destroyed i go hang out in a gray boring ass hall until somebody decides it's it's time for me to get another body and i will continue that will happen over and over again until i am too miserable to come back to a body or the fucking world burns down and there is nothing left and that's the end and i have this by word of god that this is my fate secondhand word of god but word of word of god leans that this is my fate right 
I mean, that's a that's a pretty daunting thing to think this about. This is why the Athrobeth, I think, is so fucking underrated is and is my my favorite thing. And I think the most important thing in the Legendarium, when you really grasp what that means and think about the elves, it colors everything the elves do and every interaction they have with everyone else. They will live until everything is dead and dies and then they're done. Mm-hmm. Now, for them, they are a, a, a as fundamental piece of the world in their conception as the mountains and the air and the water in the oceans. They are a piece of the world. Now, that said, keep that in your head. Mm-hmm. For them, the Eldar held, this is, I'm quoting, the Eldar held that only those efforts of will were free, which were directed to a fully aware purpose. That is to say that if you left on a journey, I'm not quoting now, I'm reading my own notes. If you left on a journey, you would exercise free will to choose to go. But along the way, you might be directed through hardship or physical feature of land onto a path of an enemy you are fated to meet. But once you were were there, what you do again is your free choice. Now, why this is, it's because they believed that Arda as a physical place was following the music. Mm-hmm. But they had free will within the confines of that. Their choices within Arda were free. But Arda itself and them as a piece of Arda were following the music. So unless they made a, they were fully aware and made a fully aware choice, they were sort of in the music. And being directed by it. But then they might fully choose to do something different. And this is what was so befuddling to them about men. Men were not in the music the same way. Men's Mm. every action seemed buttfuck random to them. Just like willy-go-nilly, you know? Because men were fully... And it's explicitly stated in, in, in there that men's actions were fully free. Mm-hmm. everything they did was a free choice. They were not bound into the music in the same way. They right. were part of the music, but not of the music the same way. And taking that even one step further is that when it came time for the second round of music, right, at the end of all things that we know, men are invited to add to it. Yeah. And elves are not. Right? That's the next That's the theory. Of them. Yeah. Hmm. And... Hmm. The hope is that the elves, that this world will be rebuilt or carried forward. And that's why the the good boys like Finrod are optimistic that men will will, will be the saviors of elves. I really want people to take a moment and think, this is why Tolkien's world feels different than other things. Because Tolkien spent a lifetime building a world that is not just humans with... purple eyes and dark hair and different weird hair he built a world he built languages and cultures and histories he built hopes and fates and everything he he soaked this world with his entire life's creative creative output and it shows and you can feel it in things like this because the elves and their weird fate and 
all of that feels so rich and real. There's a reason why this is the part of Middle-earth that moves me so deeply. The spiritual fate of the elves I find just unbelievably tragic and moving. Yeah, I think to me that it really rings home when, um, I don't remember if it was Elrond or Galadriel or someone said to Frodo, like, I think to the hobbits, like, you guys are... Like, you doing this task is, like, you coming to us is, like, the end of our time. Because no matter what the outcome is, it's it's marking the end for us. So, like, that deep sadness that they all feel about, like, leaving Middle-earth, like, in Lord of the Rings, right? That, like, deep sadness that you feel through every time you encounter an elf, pretty much. Like, it, there's a reason behind that, and it's so deep, and it's... it's yeah. It's very palpable. It's like you can feel it as a reader, but you don't know where it comes from unless you take this step forward into the legendarium and figure out what, like, where this is coming from. And and the fact that it is coming from this like really real like, you know, religion that he made up for them. That that's what again, yeah, as you say, makes it so moving and gives it its depth. And yeah. I think, um, yeah, it just it just makes it um, it really makes it real in a way that other fantasy literature can't do. Yeah. So uh, the last thing I want to talk about briefly is the problem of evil. Uh, this is another one of those fundamental philosophical problems, more philosophy of religion, uh, also a very big religious problem. And this is fundamentally, how do you have a good God and a world that sucks? Tolkien very clearly is trying to navigate this in various places, trying to answer the question. There's that famous quote uh, from the Silmarillion, the idea that, like, no matter what Morgoth does, it will be turned to the good of the music in the end. So yeah. the, the problem of, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I feel like I summed it up pretty pretty simply there. But it, it's, it's slightly more complicated than that. But that really is the, base, the basic gist of it, is how is a good god able to allow, allow evil to exist? How do you justify that? Like, what is the moral and ph philosophical basis upon which you justify the existence of a good god and evil and sin in at the same time yeah absolutely and there's a real world term for that right coined in the 1700s and that's the word theodicy yeah and it's like an attempt to justify god's existence in light of this all the imperfections and all the evils in the world like why does yeah. why why is there evil when there is an all-knowing god yeah Interesting. I mean, and that's wow. Well, yeah. Did we ever feel? Do we ever figure that one out? I don't think so. No. I mean, n none of these are airtight. Um, yeah. Yeah, Lindale no, in a uh, is a theodicy in a big way because mm -hmm. it posits a reason why there is corruption in the world. Whether you consider it successful is another question. I mean, arguably, like the you say, oh well, he gave Morgoth free will, and Morgoth chose to do these things. So you know. It's not really his fault, but Eru is God, so there's that. And he exists outside of time. Like, that, that point is made really explicitly. He exists mm -hmm. outside of the circles of time. So literally, he, he knows ex everything that's going to happen from start to finish at all times. The whole concept of linear time is, 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 like, a thing he un is like a thing he created, but doesn't, doesn't apply to him. Right, sure. So Morgoth's rebellion is a fact which he knew in the same instant that he knew how time was going to end. The moment he created Morgoth, he knew how Morgoth would choose. 
Or did he? Because there's free will. If God knows what you're going to choose before you choose it, is it free will? Oh, you see how we you see why this is relevant? Because we come right back around full circle. Right. Can, can God be all knowing if if free will exists? Right. No, right. So I mean we we definitely made the point in the last episode that the Valar don't have as much free will as we thought they do because they are created to be a certain way and to do to fulfill a certain mm-hmm. kind of tick box, right? Yeah. But yeah. then at the same time, like Maybe they do. I mean, they definitely have know. some free will, but the degree to which how much free will they have is for sure different between them and variable. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot going on there. Yeah. So yeah, those are the terms that we're working with. That's Those are sort of the big words we're going to be using. Those and also great. like sort of the subjects that we're touching here. So what I want to do now is I want to look at some examples in the primary texts. And then sure. once we've done that, we'll look at, we'll sort of sum up with like, well, so where, where does that, where does that land us? What is Tolkien mm-hmm. trying to say about fate and free will in Middle Earth? And does it work? Do we feel like that's yeah. a successful effort or does he fucking blow it? And we'll sort of sum up at the end. Cool. That sounds great. We'll start in the Ainulindale, which we just talked about, which is, as previously discussed, a theodicy. In the Ainulindale... Uh, if you are not familiar with it, it is the... F- it can be found in the Silmarillion, the Silmarillion right? Yep, it is the yep. first part of the Silmarillion. The Island of depicts the creation of the universe through the metaphor of music. It should be noted, and this is a thing that is not explicitly stated in the Silmarillion or the Island of but this is a text written for elves, by elves, based on what they have been told by the Valar. And I think that should be <laughs> kept in mind because sure. there 100% is a audience bias in that piece. But I think it still is important because it has a lot of, it is still being told to you by people that were there. Like the information was conveyed by people that were there, so to speak. And the details I think are really interesting. So it depicts God saying, I would like to create some stuff. So I create a whole bunch of agents of creation, which are the Valar or the beings from whom the Valar are a a subset. And he gives them all various natures, some greater, some lesser. And then unto each of them, he, he, he assigns a task in this music and has them perform for him and to adorn their part according to their own mind, which is the quote Mm -hmm. that is most often, it's a little crazy to me. I just want to say that I know I don't have to look up a lot of these quotes anymore. (laughs) They're part of your very being now. Yeah, I'm of two minds on how how I feel about that. There's a little pride and a little bit of like, huh, I wonder what else that brain power could have been used for. Um, (laughs) Anyway. Oh, it's fine. uh, that is the the line that is most often used to reference the idea that the that the Valar have at least some degree of free will, because he says he he get, grants them the ability to adorn their own their parts, their themes according to their own mind. Mm-hmm. Sure. Notably, a few things happen here. Morgoth is the or Melkor, as he is known at the time is the greatest among them. He is closest in mind to Eru. And 
he seeks to create things in his own way. So what that tells you is he is the most free willed of all of the thing of all of the Valar. Sure. So think about that. And he's also huh. the biggest the the origin of sin. So there's some real Catholic horseshit going on there. <laughs> Stay with the party line. Yeah. Or you're the bad guy. <laughs> la 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 la. It's like everyone else is playing like beautiful concerto of music and he's like, no, acid jazz. Yeah. Acid jazz. Nope. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, but you're not wrong. That's very much what's going on. He he has a very distinct idea of what he wants to do of his own, and he's punished for it. We've talked, we had a whole episode on creators, but there's, you could take that whole episode and just dub out, every time we say cr- maker or creator, you could, t- you could put in the phrase free willed. Mm-hmm. Because that's very much yeah. what we're talking about there. And that's I think that's point. really, really interesting that there is a sense that Arrow is not soups down with free will amongst his servants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, a fr- <laughs> it's free will as long as they do what he wants in the end, right? Yeah, which is kind of interesting. Um, it's not really free will, yeah. <laughs> but... And this is where this is where we get into that whole problem of evil question. There's nothing to say that that Arrow could not have simply wiped Melkor from existence the second he disobeyed him. It requires a great deal of noodling and hoop jumping to say like, oh, well, they'd already started creation. Why didn't he just start over? He's God. Does he have a right. finite yeah. amount of like world juice? <laughs> like, Gross. If this were like an actual, this is one area where I feel like if it were a real mythological system, there mm-hmm. would be an answer to that question. Somebody would have asked a question and somebody would have made up an answer because that's what happens in mythologies. People create answers for things. What are the sun and the moon? Oh, that's Bob and Fred. Why Why is fire hot? Oh, it's, it's the devil's farts. Like... People answer questions. That's what some <laughs> mythology is for, right? It, it's, it's answering right. questions. People, it's people creating answers to questions at a sure. time when, like, there weren't a lot of answers out there. So you make, you make sure. them up. You, you build a system of answers that is comprehensible and transmissible, okay. right? The idea of, like, why didn't he just start over? Like, why was it impossible for God to not just redo it? Why, why did he have to let Melkor be evil? There right. would be an answer there because just couldn't. I don't know. It do, it doesn't it doesn't uh, jive, right? Of like, of course he yeah. could. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Now the reason why there isn't one in Christian doctrine is because that was past the mythological stage. That wasn't about answering questions anymore. It was about order and obedience. Oh well, yeah. But I mean, if you asked someone from. <laughs> within theology, they would probably argue with you on that one, right? Yeah, but I mean, from a cultural standpoint, they weren't there to answer every question. Okay, like they knew why the, fire the was religion up. was what the religion was, was what the religion was. It wasn't there to give people answers and the cultural, like to generate answers. It was there to let me rephrase that. It wasn't there to make yeah. new answers. It was a body of work from which you were to find your own answers. Okay. But if there was no, nothing in the text that said why the moon rose, it wasn't going to give you a new answer. Whereas with mythology, 
it was entirely possible to get for someone to come up with a new story about why the moon rose and for that right. and for that story to join the body of work and to become a part of the of the of the mythology that's sure. how that 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 was a feature of how mythology worked not a, not not as much with like catholicism okay yeah. yeah, you and I are a little out of our depth with that, but yes, I I, I see what you're saying. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Uh, so I feel like there would have been an answer to that mm-hmm. in a real mythological system, mm-hmm. but there's not because no. this is a Catholic universe. So there's no answer there. Sure, uh, and I feel like there should be, but there isn't. We are simply told to sort of like move along. Right. Uh, but what we end up with is this contradictory system, because during the Analindula, we're also told he creates the children who have free will, especially men, capital M, men. Mm-hmm. He has this quote that people always point to, to try and say that men are the only ones that have free will. Therefore, he willed that the hearts of men should seek beyond the world and should find no rest therein, but they should have a virtue to shape their life amid the powers and chances of the world, beyond the music of the Ainur, which is to fate, uh, which is as fate to all things else. It's more, much more complicated than that. He explicitly says that there is free will amongst all the souled creatures. If you have a soul, you've got free will. But we were talking earlier about men and their willfulness. Men have this total f- freedom, and the elves view that as like a complete freedom from the music. They are sort of like free actors within a system that otherwise has a lot of rules, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Chaotic agent, so to speak. So think of it like this. There's th- the line is, amid the powers and chances of the world, beyond the music of the Ainur, which is as fate to all things else. But it's lowercase fate. I think this is like my interpretation, and I'm not at all trying to say that this is canonical. My interpretation here is what, what's being said is, in that journey example... Mm-hmm. Men alone would not be subject to the same kind of getting caught up in the in the music there. But, and here's the problem with that, that's what this quote seems to be saying, comma, but fucking everything else he writes co- wildly contradicts this. Right, yeah, um, absolutely. So that's the problem with the Aina Lindale, is it makes this st- statement that men are more free than any of the others and they're not subject to fate, and then he writes like a half a dozen stories wherein men are subject to awful fates. There's clear pr- like fate, predete- predetermination, blah, 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 stuff going on. Like yeah. the half elves, like are they, are they, do they count as men? Do they count as elves? Who knows? Probably elves. There's all kinds of stuff going on there with fate. Turin, who we're going to talk about in a second, is like Jesus Christ. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff going on there where men demonstrate being like caught in the music. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it's Eru reaching out and just going, boop. Like, what is that then? If God, like, <laughs> interferes on a one-off basis, like, seven times, is, is, is that fate? The Idolins is a really interesting example, but I, I uh, remember when I said that, like, you, you want to consider the context of the, of the Idolindula? This yeah. is what I'm talking about. The Idolindula is a, is a religious document written for and by elves based on the stories told to them by the Valar. And it was written before they had met men. Oh, that's an interesting point. So they were hearing about this other group of children 
that hadn't emerged yet that they had never met. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a that kind of sucks. It's a bananas because, concept. Yeah. Right. Because it calls out specifically like elves are the most beautiful and they will have the most bliss in this world. But men, parentheses, who you don't know about till like right now, I'm going to give a greater gift. Yeah. Like what the fuck? Yeah, I- what the actual fuck? These fuckers aren't even awake yet. Why are they getting a better gift? Yeah. That's and I think this shit. is part of what informs that idea of their idea of umbar is the idea that like well our free will is bound by we're in the music but we can make choices within the music whereas men are just bloop, 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 willy-go-nilly they're not subject to fate they're just a bunch of fucking chaos goblins that a destructive god has unleashed upon our fair world like i feel like if elves were inclined to be bitter more than they are they would be very bitter about men as some of yeah. them are 100 percent are absolutely <laughs> <Fingle>. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah we already talked about morgoth i don't really have a lot more to say about morgoth than we've already said sure let's talk about the doom of mandos though this is an interesting case so the doom of mandos is where feanor the biggest bag of butts that has ever bagged up a bunch of butts ever uh, in all of the history of Valinor, (laughs) swears his fell oath, and then Mandos gets up and is like, well, you guys suck, and here's some stuff. Well, okay, hold on. That's two cliff notesies of a version. (laughs) That's two cliff notes. I mean, you're talking about the whole thing, right? Well, no, I mean, I don't really know, but basically, right. So so it's really the- Is this the Silmarils thing? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, it's really, it's the oath of Feanor that then Mandos gets up and like hallows into a curse is kind of what happens. And then also tells them they can't ever come home. So Feanor had those lovely Silmarils, the stupid spider on Galeant came and fucked everything up and darkened, right, killed the trees. And Yavanna's like, hey, Feanor, you made those beautiful Silmarils with the lights of the world. Can I please have them so that I can revive the trees? And he was like, no, these are my thingy. You're not getting it. That set off this whole chain of events of bad badness, right? Basically, his dad got killed and the Silmarils were taken and he was really pissed and he swore this oath that he was going to hunt down Morgoth. And that led to the bunch of the Noldar guys being like, no, we don't really want to do that, which eventually led to the doom of the Noldar and everything was bad and bad and bad. And that oath, as Jude said, is a curse and it keeps on going and going and it ends up basically killing all of his sons, right? That's like the slightly, well, not just sli- still cliff notes, but slightly less cliff notes version. Yeah, but okay. Yeah. So more. So what did so what did uh, Mandos do? So he was the one who made it a thing. Mandos gets up here. Let me. I, I will pull up the Doom of Mandos and read it. Doom of Mandos. Oh, what a cool name for a band! Do you want to be in that band with me, Jude? Hey, listeners, do you guys want to be in the Doom of Mandos with me? It's a metal Here's the band. Doom of no. Mandos. Tears unnumbered ye shall shed, and the Valar will fence Valinor against you and shut you out, so that not even the echo of your lamentation shall pass over the mountains. On the house of Feanor the wrath of Valar lieth from the west unto the uttermost east, and upon all that will follow them it shall be laid also. Their oath shall drive them, and yet betray them, and ever snatch away the very treasures that they have sworn to pursue. To evil end all things turn that they begin well." And by treason of kin unto kin, and the fear of treason, 
shall this come to pass. The dispossessed shall they ever be. Uh, and then he goes on a little while, um, basically saying that everything they do will fail and they will never possess the gems because of this fell oath they have sworn. The result, and he's, and it, it's right. It's correct. Everything that they try to do, every time they try and take a, take a Silmaril, uh, it get it slips through their hands or there's massive bloodshed. And it is only at the very end of the war that they finally get two of them and they can no longer hold them. They have committed so much sin in pursuit of the gems that they're, they're not worthy of them. And the two sons that are left kill themselves. But along the way, they, as it says, they're forever dispossessed. They make enemies everywhere they go. They can't stay in any one place for very long. It's a shit show. And yeah. that begs the question. This is a, I'm stealing this quote uh, from an author I don't like. Uh, so I will reference <laughs> him in the show notes, but I'm not going to give him airtime. But I really like this quote. And it's, what comes before cannot determine what comes after. As a definition of fate. Okay. Right? Uh, and I think that's a really great, like, one-liner. Right, Mandos's doom can't determine what comes after. If fate—that's like, if fate is real, then he can. But if, but he yeah. does. And what does that say to, about free will? Like, how much does that impinge their free will? The clear answer here is that Tolkien wants both. Right. He wants you to have free will, yeah. but he also wants to, you know, fuck around with you. He wants them to have free will because this is like classic old school, like particularly northern tragedy trope of having some sort of fate and then being trapped in this shitty fate and then trying to get out of it. And no matter what you do, you end up choosing the, the shitty fate or you can't choose otherwise or, or you have this shitty fate ahead of you. And so you choose something even more tragic, like throwing yourself off a cliff or something like that. <laughs> yeah. But he definitely wants there to be both. He, he wants there to be fate. And he wants there to be free will. And right. that's not uncommon. Like, that is a super common literary and religious trope to, for these two things to coexist, which is, you know, philosophically problematic. But Umbar is clearly his attempt to explain how the elves, at least, viewed the two of them coexisting. And we're going to talk a little bit about Verilyn Flieger's paper about this because I've been I've been I really think we need to bring it out now because yeah, it, let's... this is exactly what this paper is about. Yeah, lay it, it on makes... me. Sure. So, um, Verilyn Flieger, amazing, wonderful Tolkien scholar, wrote a piece called "The Music and the Task: Fate and Free Will in Middle Earth," which is absolutely perfect for what we're talking about right now. And in that paper, she. She basically poses the question, why did Tolkien conceive of this system that's in contradiction with itself, right? Face, fate and free will. And her thesis, she basically has three reasons. She starts with a strategic reason, and that is to diffuse like comparisons with real world systems, right? He didn't want to be compared with Arthurian legend or whatever it is. The second reason, uh, her second kind of thesis point is a personal reason for him with this weird system. And that is to deal with the loss of his two closest friends in World War II. And then the third thesis point is a sub-creative reason, which was to give like an, like an ordered universe, a plausible mechanism for change. And I think like her big point is that basically like we all live 
with this this paradox in our life all the time. And I even said that right of my own self at the top of this episode, that this is something that, you know, we, we all kind of struggle with it. And it, I think Verlin Flieger is basically saying that, like, yeah, she's she has this great quote. She says um, that Tolkien was, quote unquote, creating characters and situations through which he hoped to show how confusing the complex interaction of competing but interactive forces can be, right? So she... she acknowledges that he is doing both things and she thinks that this is deliberate and he's doing it to kind of make this closer to what we're what we're all used to this paradox that we all live with all the time mm-hmm. um yeah so i don't know so I, I think i think like as you say i think i mean i kind of agree with her that it seems to be on purpose right because i don't have an answer for it. you don't the theology doesn't have an answer for it yeah what do you think I, th- I think it's a great paper. I don't entirely agree with the pr- with with her. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that his motives were literary more than verisimilitude. I mm-hmm. think that his his world by necessity had to have both, and the verisimilitude that she's talking about was a an outgrowth of that necessity. Mm-hmm. The stories that he was inspired by, the Calavella, Beowulf, Beowulf, all these northern mm-hmm. epics, fate is an enormous part of that. But then he also had this very strong Catholic background, which has this very powerful element of, looping back, moral responsibility. And he had mm-hmm. to have both of those things. He wanted the, that, that fate, that tragic fate going on in his tales. But he also, I mean, he, he, was, he would be unable to write anything that did not have moral responsibility in it. And I mm-hmm. think the consequence is this contradiction, which he then sort of made use of in, to, to, to generate something that felt real. But I don't think he's, I, I think my personal feeling is that, that it, it was that order. It was, these are the things that went into the pot, and then I seasoned the pot to make it taste good. Not, yeah. here's the taste I'm aiming for. What can I put in the pot? Right. Yeah. And that, I mean, that hark, that harkens back to the, the, the whole, the big soup thing in, in, um, on fairy stories. Right. Mm-hmm. And there's a big soup pot that we're all adding things to in the world of folklore or, or, or tales or whatever it is. And we're all kind of building on that. Yeah. Um, I think that, um, the paper is is excellent. I think it's a really excellent paper. I really like going into the reasons like why he might have created this and you know or not created this dichotomy because we know it exists but al- allowed it to kind of be in his per- in his in his world. One thing th- that she talks about that I really like when she's talking about the subcreative reason this um her third thesis point she talks about the Lindelay, which we kind of already covered. But one thing she says is, you know, when Mel- when Melkor broke the harmony with that kind of discordant music that of his own that he put in, she points out that um, Iluvatar, or, you know, Eru says, okie dokie, well, this is a new thing. This is Ea. This is the world that is. And she suggests that that, that, wor- that the verb is is very important in that moment. Mm-hmm. It's the world that is. It's not the world as it should be or the world as it ought to have been. It's what it is. It is unfinished. It's conflicting. It contains both harmony and discord, love and war, all these things. It, cre- it has all these dichotomies. And 
and that's okay. He's saying, like, that's fine. And he creates these children, the elves and men. They come directly from him. And the elves, you know, the elves have time to kind of live out lives on Middle-earth. And then men are given this this task to help, like, to finish the music, right? Yeah. To go beyond what elves can do and to, like... Yeah, she just has a really great quote. Do you mind if I read it no, at please. the end? Yeah, she has this really wonderful part at the end. It's like basically the last thing in the paper. And she writes, Only then can we understand the paradox with which I introduced this discussion as Tolkien's ultimately hopeful vision for what he saw as a fallen world. That in a flawed and faulty creation, it is the task appointed for flawed and faulty human beings, struggling with the world around them, sometimes making false starts, often following twisted paths of which they themselves cannot always see the ends to lead themselves and that world out of error and into light. And I thought that's kind of nice. You know, it's very yeah, helpful at no, the absolutely. end. Um, yeah. So, so Iluvatar is allowing this, this weirdness to, to be there because it's okay. It's supposed to be like that for now. That's what it is. And, and it's going to be like Arda remade, right? Yeah. That's the whole thing. And I just think that's very, I think that's very touching. And I, I think that's a hopeful thing that I think, I think that's deliberate, right? Tolkien's, I think that's a big, I don't know. He's putting a lot of faith in us. <laughs> yeah. I think that's pretty amazing. Agreed. Because otherwise, if we can't change the outcome, why would we be doing any of this? Right. And that's the, and that's the whole point. So yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's a great paper. It's an interesting paper. Um, I I don't know. I, she she has lots of interesting examples of of this from text, both from like mainstream text, like Lord of the Rings, but then also from some Silmarillion stuff as well. Um, so definitely check that out if you want to hear more about like her showing you tangible moments of of characters making choices yeah. and what she feels like those choices lead to and where they came from. It's very interesting, like yeah. Sam and the High Pass and and Aragorn at the Falls of Ralros. You know, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I listed off like a, like a dozen of them here, and we're not going to get to half of them. Like, yeah, I know, um, I know, but it's fascinating. I, I think that this, I think that this can have more discussion. You know, for I sure. think that this, this is the kind of thing. Like, as I read, as as we do more of this show, and as you kind of, you know, nudge me to read more and more of these things, uh, they make more sense to me, and the world keeps on opening and opening. That's great. So kind of like when we talked about the Atherbeth, and you always say to me, oh, I wish we could redo that. I think we totally can, and I think this is another thing you can come back to, because now I look at it very differently than Stephanie of two years ago, who was like, I think men got a stupid gift. <laughs> I don't know, like maybe I'm changing my tune right. a little nice. bit. So then the last thing I want to talk about here with regards to what Tolkien's doing, like the examples, is one of the things that a lot of people who have looked at these examples in Tolkien's work have noted is that a lot of what Tolkien's doing in his works is reminiscent of medieval philosopher named Boethius. Ooh. Um, I am not going to touch that subject with any sort of... <laughs> Because I did not research that deeply. Maybe that'll be a future episode. I don't know. Yeah, let's do that. Um, but I wanted to call it out because it's a, the reading I did do on it is really fucking cool. Um, but basically, there's a lot of evidence that his conceptions of fate and free will 
are deeply influenced by Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, which I have read uh, because Oof. I took way too many philosophy of religion classes. Um, <laughs> but there's a lot of evidence to suggest that those are connected. So I highly recommend that you either check out Boethius or if you would like a more connected solution there. Verlin Flieger's got a fundamental work, uh, like a foundational work of Tolkien academic scholarship called Splintered Light, uh, Logos and Language. In Tolkien's world, there was a second edition in, I don't know, like 20 years ago now. Uh, that book is like one of the, the foundational works of, of Tolkien scholarship. It's phenomenal. Pick it up because she talks there's a piece in there that talks about Boethius uh, somewhere. Oh, awesome. I can't remember where, but it, it's mentioned in there as well. Cool. Anyway, I think it's really interesting that those are connected. I don't want to get into it too deeply because, again, I don't feel really qualified to speak on it. But in my research, it came up like three times. So I thought it was worth calling out here to show, to sort of mention that it was a thing that a lot of people saw. Uh, so you're, connected. you're saying that did Tolkien study Boethius? Yeah. It, and he was a philosopher, yeah. so you're thinking... There's a lot of evidence that Tolkien was deeply influenced by medieval Catholic philosophy. Okay. One of my uh, favorite authors, uh, recent authors of Tolkien scholarship, wrote a book called The Flame and Perishable. The author is Jonathan McIntosh, uh, all about the influence of St. Thomas on the metaphysics of Middle-earth. Ooh, cool. It's an incredible book, uh, and it walks through the connection between Tolkien's metaphysics and St. Thomas's. It's a tremendous work. Um, I was reading his blog as he was writing his PhD thesis, which is what this book is based on. It's based on his PhD thesis. And it's phenomenal. I love that book. But it, it, there's a lot of evidence to show that, that Tolkien was, was really interested in medieval Catholic philosophy, and it influenced a lot of stuff in Middle-earth. So I'll put a link to The Flame and Perishable in the show notes as well. Yes, please do. That'd be great. Let's let's kind of sum up here. So let's start with some questions. Who sure. has free will in Middle Earth? Do you think? That's. I think. I think everyone does. Yeah, I think whether or not it's explicitly stated in like the Iowindel or something like that. I do think between letters and examples, I do think it seems clear that everyone with a soul has free will. Sure. How does that free will make sense in relation to the music? Do we feel like there's an answer for that? I like what Vera Lynn Flieger, her point from that article that I read or that paper that I read, mm -hmm. which is that the music is an overarching thing that exists. And within the world, while we cannot change it, we can redirect things within it. Mm -hmm. She she says, you know, you, you may meet an enemy on the path. You are... You, are fated to meet that enemy on the path, but is your choice about how you meet them yeah. and how you act in that moment. Yeah. Whether or not that then spirals into other things, right? Like we talked about um, with Feanor or even Turin, right? Mm -hmm. All these people who whose choices then go on to affect other people. Like whether or not, I mean, I think that that's probably true, but I, I do think there has to be the music because we know it's a, we just know that it's a thing. Yeah. I mean, I think because that's what everything's based on. But yeah, I do think that you can, in my opinion, yes, they people can change things and the way, as you say, that they that they react to things. Yeah, I would broadly agree then, with that. 
Yeah, I think yeah. within the context of Middle Earth, I think Umbar is a super fascinating conception of fate. And I think it's within its context, I think it works very nicely to manage the two competing ideas. So I like it. And then the last question, does Tolkien answer the problem of evil? I would say barring the, with the single exception of like, I mean, no, but <laughs> it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't, but it, it, in the same, in the same way that like nobody does, I think it answers the, the question of like, why is there evil in the world? And like, how did it get there? And what, what's God doing about it? But it doesn't answer the fundamental question of like, why didn't God just take care of it at the beginning? Like yeah. it tries to because it does the whole like all the th evil things you do are going to be put to good ends at the ultimately. Right. But that's not right. solving the problem of evil. That's just saying like he's going to try that's and fix it. It's the there's like a consolation prize, but it's not the it, does, it isn't a solution. So right. I would say it's not no. a solution. But if you think about it, that part of the gift of men is to help solve that evil right and and be a part of that second music and help to to heal the world and that they that's a gift that they're given and without that they're not we are not as a race what we are mm -hmm. right yeah then maybe we needed to have that evil in the first place it had to be there to give yeah no that's man that reason to be different and to be special yeah. in that way uh, I, I don't know I it's think kind it's a of bad BS, answer but, but i think it's a, it's an answer <laughs> like I know, putting, I know, putting it sucks. Putting evil in the it world sucks. just to justify, like, the... Yeah, no, it's bullshit, you're yeah. right. No, but I mean, it's an interesting point, it's an interesting idea, so, maybe. Yeah, I don't know, I think, and I think that's the thing, I think that, I don't think Tolkien needs to answer the problem of why I, there's evil. That may, that's a totally valid point of view. I don't, I don't think he does either, to a degree. I think anytime you, you create a universe with a god, you have to decide if you're going to try and he kind of does a half-hearted attempt at it with the in the Anilindala. So I think that's why it's fair to ask if he does it well, it, whether he does it. But I don't think it's critical to the enjoyment or the, like the comprehension of any of this, whether or not he does it well. Yeah. Fairlyn Flieger brings up the interesting point that there has been, you know, we know that there's many versions of the Ina Lindale, right? Yeah. Like there's like uh, Christopher Tolkien did a wonderful job of like Ina Lindale A and B and C and D and kind of tracing that to, to what mm -hmm. Tolkien, because Tolkien changed a lot of things about it, right? It went through a lot of revisions, but Flieger makes the point that that, that idea of, of men and their gift and this idea of like the second music and that they're going to heal, that never changed. That was always the same through oh, every single one. Yeah. And I let, and I think that's very cool because what that is such a, I think that goes to prove that's a very foundational thing for Tolkien from the beginnings, right? In the yeah. 19, in 1918 to, to the 70s when it was public, you know. That's really yeah. cool. I did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This was a great episode. I'm really, really happy with how this went. And I I learned something, some stuff. And I I feel like this was, I hope that you, the listeners, enjoyed learning some stuff and uh, got something out of it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those episodes. It's frustrating, right? Because it doesn't all tie up in a bow. Um, uh, Certainly not. And I think... 
<laughs> but I think it's a great thing to think about. I, would... I, I think I personally need to sit with it more, but I'm glad that I have this lens now to view as I reread things or as I keep mm-hmm. reading. I now, I really feel like, okay, I under I understand solidly that this dissonance is supposed to be there or, yeah. you know. Yeah, I, it's pretty cool. I definitely would like to go back at some point in the future and go back and do the Athrobeth again or do something maybe do another one on like the second music maybe, you know, and do something Absolutely. about that. I think that would be a really interesting one that would sort of touch on stuff we've covered already in the Athrobeth, but would be a different angle on it and stuff. Because I think there's a lot there that we haven't covered directly that could be really good. Yeah, and I, I think too, like there are so many subjects I'd like to to discuss with you because I want to hear your take on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you could like a great one, you know, we because this we were sort of had so much to talk about in this particular episode, we didn't get a chance to touch on Turin Turinbar, who's one of my favorite jackholes to talk about. Yeah, we have um, we definitely think, have to do a Turin episode at some point here. We do, and I think that we when we do that, we can rebring we can bring up this idea of fate and free will again and yeah. revisit it. That I think again this is one of those subjects that you can bring up oh absolutely in many yeah many stories so yeah, yeah for sure cool well jude i have to say to the listeners that jude did mental gymnastics <laughs> to do this and this is jude's baby and jude did all the work for this amazing thank you so much for for presenting this so beautifully and for giving us all these great examples uh this was amazing mm, thank welcome. you thank you you killed it <laughs> And now I'm going to go off and be evil somewhere because it's my prerogative to do so because <laughs> I have free will. You know what I'm saying? You no, know I'm, I'm doing big eyebrows, but you can't see it, listeners, when I got some big eyebrows happening. Just right there. We can't do any better than that. Just tr- cut it right there. <laughs> <laughs> The road may go ever on and on, but this episode is over. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes as it helps increase our visibility. You can find us on the web at podcast.atherbeth.com, where I swear I will fix the website, Stephanie. I promise. Oh my God. It is still from August of last year. You can find the show on Twitter at atherbeth underscore cast. I can be found at Aramidic Jude. And Steph can be found on Instagram at the North Floor. Title music is Lord of the Devil Rings by Pony <laughs> Music, courtesy of Pond5. Today's episode was produced by James Pearson. James can be found on Titter at Jay Pearson. Thanks <laughs> for listening. Titter. Thanks for listening. I wrote Titter. Oh, no. This is this is the troublemaker. Podcat. There she is. She's got long legs. <gasps> Do that again. Little cat meow. Meow.